Amen. I think for most Christians, that's one of their all-time favorite songs, and as well it should be when you stop and you consider the message in it, but not just the message in it, but the story behind it. And so I comment on that frequently. I'm not going to belabor the point this morning other than to say, you know, that the, the man that wrote that sacrificed an infant son and four daughters, and uh, he certainly understood what he was writing about. He lived it. And, you know, one of the great tragedies in American history, besides the impact on his family personally, um, is in large part responsible. His daughters died because they were getting out of Chicago after the great Chicago fire. Uh, about a week or so ago, Brother Trevon and I were driving downtown Chicago, and, and uh, we took off. We're coming down Lakeshore Drive and, and uh, jumped in on Michigan Avenue. And on Michigan Avenue, just, just right, at, there's a big bend in Lakeshore Drive. It comes straight down and makes a, uh, just a, not two 90s. And if you go straight there, you get on the Michigan Avenue in downtown. And when you look over to the right, uh, there's the Great Chicago Water Tower. The, that water tower survived the fire. It was one of the very few structures that survived the fire of Chicago. Uh, but thousands of people lost their lives and, and property, uh, and so it, it really is an amazing thing. Now, I, I love history, so I, I feed on things like that. I, I love to see things like that, and, and it puts them in context. But if you go over about two blocks north LaSalle, maybe, maybe a couple more blocks, but uh, when you go down north LaSalle, if you come off Lakeshore, get off at the LaSalle exit, uh, and go over, right on the corner there is the Moody Church. The Moody Church was, D.L. Moody never preached there, but R.A. Torrey did. And if you uh, are a history of fundamentalism, you understand the significance and the impact of the ministry of R.A. Torrey. Uh, he was a song leader for many years for D.L. Moody, and then he became the pastor of the Moody Church whenever D.L. Moody passed away. Right down LaSalle is the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, and so as you drive down North LaSalle and you get there on the right-hand side of the road, the Moody Bible Institute is still operation. It's still in, in, in ministering today. Pacific Garden Mission is still actively uh, reaching people and preaching the gospel there today. Uh, and I, I say that to say this. I picked up a book at uh, a conference that we were at up in Wisconsin on that trip. And uh, it was published by Moody Publishers. Uh, and, you know, Moody Publishers are still very actively engaged in publishing ministry. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily endorse everything that they publish today, but they still publish many great, wonderful things. And I picked up a book on worship uh, that I just, I really couldn't put it down. I, I picked it up. I started reading it on, the, on, uh, on Thursday or Friday and finished it uh, this week. I'm going to reread it this week and, and just so that I am in an environment where I can sit down and take a lot of notes to it. Uh, because it, it, it stirred my heart and it convicted me and it reminded me of the importance of our, why we're created. We're created to worship God. Amen. First and foremost, there's nothing that we do that's more important than worshiping our Savior. That's why he made us. He wants fellowship with his creation. And so everything else is secondary to worship. And outside of genuine worship, nothing else that we do can be done with his power and blessing. And so we can do a lot of and engage in a lot of religious activity, but without the power of God, it means nothing. And without genuine worship or a true view of God. See, when we have a, a realistic view of God, not the view of God that's been accepted by our culture, but a genuine view of God, the automatic impact on that on our lives is worship. 
And so when we look and see, I'm, I'm not going to really get into all that in depth this morning. I, there, there, there's a sermon series in the works. I'll just put a plug in uh, that, that's going to be coming soon to a pulpit near you. And so uh, it, it's, uh, it's on the verge of, of happening. And so I hope that you'll uh, be thinking and praying along those lines. But this morning in Genesis chapter 13, we see some evidence of worship and the impact that it can have on our lives. And you know, before God instituted the church, he instituted the home. Before God communed with people on a corporate basis, he communed with us as individuals. And we see that in the life of Abraham. And then we see that again in the life, particularly in this context, we see it in the life of his grandson, Jacob. And so we're going to look at these two this morning and consider here the importance of a personal sacred place. Not a place of corporate worship, but a personal sacred place. In Genesis chapter number 13, we see the second instance in Abraham's life where he comes to this place. And Abram went up, in verse 1, out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you for this reminder that you seek close fellowship and communion with your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that long to spend time with you as well. All that's necessary for that longing to be in our heart as for us to genuinely get a glimpse of who you are. Lord, I pray that you reveal yourself to us in such a way, realizing that such a revelation almost always happens in private places. Lord, help us to long for you as you long for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it would be impossible this morning for me to overstate the importance of spending time with God every day. But you can spend time with God every day and it be hollow and meaningless. You can engage in a relationship of convenience with God that does not necessarily translate into communion and fellowship with God. We live today in an information revolution. And the reality of that is that our lives have become busy. Our minds are busy. Our things, our day-to-day -day expectations are busy. Now, there are a lot of things about technology that are wonderful. I love the fact that when I sit down to study for a sermon, I can take and set up uh, my iPad on one hand and my phone in the other uh, and I can immediately pull up concordances and, uh, and dictionaries and thesauruses and all of the tools that I need rather than having a pile of books uh, to search out the meaning of five or six words instead of fumbling through and that taking an hour, I can probably do the same thing in about 20 minutes. There's a lot of good that's come from technology, but one of the negatives of technology is that it has created in our hearts and in our minds an expectation of having everything that I want now. Yeah. And, and we're all susceptible to it. 
I'm, I'm slow to come around to a lot of things, intentionally so. I, I, I'm, I'm never generally going to be the first one to jump onto the bandwagon of a new idea. Uh, there are too many times that those ideas don't take long to prove that they weren't so hot after all. Uh, I, want, I want things to settle. I want God to clear the way and show me uh, that he's on board before I jump on board and things of, uh, of, of spiritual application. But the reality is, is that we all have a fast food mentality to a certain point. You know, I didn't grow up with a cell phone. They didn't exist back in those days. And I didn't grow up with uh, a lot of the, the conveniences that m many people that are here that are, uh, that are probably about 35 or 40 or younger grew up with in hand. And, uh, you know, the, the sad thing is, is that my, uh, my five-year-old granddaughter is a lot more tech savvy than her 53-year-old grandfather is. They grew up with it at their disposal. And so there's just like an innate understanding of, uh, of uh, how to work the thing. And so I have to struggle in what comes to them very naturally. Uh, but life has gotten busy. And I don't know about you, I, I get kind of frustrated when things don't happen fast enough. All right. So, for example, the other day, uh, I don't remember if it was Sunday night or Wednesday night, but, you know, we're, my wife was like, Let's get something to eat after. And so I just walked in the door and, and I hadn't taken my shoes off. And I said, do you want to do something? I can whip something up real quick. And I'm like, no, I'll just go uh, grab something real quick. Well, for, for us, grabbing something real quick almost always means Whataburger or Chick-fil-A because they're both about half a mile from our house, if that. On a rare occasion, it'll mean Wingstop right behind the house. And so, uh, but I'm not that great of a fan. And so, uh, you know, we don't do that quite as often. And so if I've got to get up and get out and be the one to go stir something up, I'm, gonna, I'm looking for convenience. So, well, pastor, how do, you make, how do you decide which one? Well, most people decide which one based upon what they've got a hankering for. Rarely is that the defining factor for me. The drive-through line is the defining factor for me. And so when I pull into Chick-fil-A and Whataburger, which are side by side, uh, the, if the lines are equal, Chick-fil-A wins. Uh, if, uh, uh, if, I can, if I can get through the line at Whataburger to park and go in, sometimes it's worth going in. And so uh, the other, no offense, Brother Charles, he works at that particular Whataburger. Uh, and so none of this is his fault either, by the way. Uh, and so the other day I went up there, and I want to think it was a Sunday night, because I don't think the Chick-fil-A was an option, though it might have been. And so I pulled in, and I thought, I'm just going to wait in the line. And the line was long, but the line for Whataburger was moving okay. It was definitely not Chick-fil-A pace, but at least, you know, every 30 to 45 seconds, you got tempted with the thought that you might move soon. And so, you know, I get in the line and I order our meals, and it's just really simple. It's just two hamburgers and fries and a drink, right? So not that big of a deal. So we wait around, I get in line and I get up to the window and, and everything's moved pretty good. I've been in line maybe about six or seven minutes and gotten from my order to that point. For the next seven to eight minutes, I sat at that window. I don't understand why still. I don't understand either why when you order something that automatically normally comes with bacon, they don't put it on at that Whataburger when you come through the drive-through line. It's happened a lot of times. One time I even, I even paid for extra bacon and didn't get it. And so I, you know, I try to be kind and, and not too frustrated when I go in and complain the next time I actually go inside. But I figure if they don't know, they can't fix it, right? 
So I try to have a good spirit, but I'm sitting at the window and there's a big truck behind me and the line is just getting worse and worse and I'm, I'm self-conscious. I never want to be the holdup, okay? So I get, uh, I frustrate my, my children growing up or leading a group or if I go to the store and we're all together. I don't know what it is about my wife's culture, but my, in my wife's culture, uh, walking across the entire parking lot and spreading out so that no cars can get by is like the normal thing. Uh, if you go to uh, the outlet mall and, and, and you get down there and there's a group of us, uh, people are going to have a trouble getting past us because we're walking slow and we're spread out. Uh, it, it's just kind of what we do. And so uh, I, I, that bothers me. I don't like being the holdup. I don't like being in the way. I don't like being the drag. So here I sit at the window holding up the line. Now I'm not truly the one that's holding up the line. I, I'm just waiting on my two hamburgers. And so seven or eight minutes later, and sometimes I've timed it, I've waited 20 minutes for a hamburger at a fast food restaurant. Uh, and so uh, I, I finally, by the time it gets there, and I was, I was, I was a good little cookie. I, I didn't say anything rad. I didn't, get, I didn't show any frustration to the employee. It wasn't her fault. Uh, and so, uh, you know, but I'm in, inside, I'm like, I got to get going. I'm holding up the line. I'm the guy that's sitting in the truck behind me that's saying, why did this fool get here and order for 25 people in the drive-thru? Uh, and so you all have, have had those sentiments, right? Uh, and so, but honestly, it was just two hamburgers. It shouldn't be such a problem. Uh, and so, but I'm feeling the heat, even though there's not any heat to feel. And so this is kind of the way that I'm, I, I'm wired. I don't want to be the holdup. I, I want to drive in. I want to place my order. I want to swipe my card. I want to pull up to the window. I want my food to be there and I want to get home with it before it gets cold. And so that's our mentality. And so we, we live that way. And that applies to every element of our lives. I, I'm really, I, you know, I'm not a shopper. I, I really don't enjoy shopping. And so I take, I, I took my daughters a lot whenever they were still in the house. Uh, I take my wife. It was great when my daughters were home because I could take my books and uh, my iPad, my Bible, and I could sit in the parking lot in this time of the year and I could get some work done while they were shopping. Of course, in the summer, it's a little bit more problematic, especially since uh, places that you can sit down with air conditioning are closed to seating right now. Uh, but now that the girls are gone and it's just she and I, she's got it in her head that I'm supposed to go sit in all those stores with her now again. And so it's really, uh, you know, not at the top of my list of things to do if we're looking for something to do that's enjoyable uh, and that's fun. Uh, and so, you know, but we want it now. But I'm, I'm slow to subscribe to, you know, the, the online ordering. If I'm going to pay for something, I want to touch it. I want to feel it. I want to see it. I want to make sure that the picture did it justice uh, before I plop money down on it. And I definitely don't have to wait for a week after I've separated, been separated from my money before I get to look at it. I used to hate, and I still do, buying suits for that reason, because I go buy a suit, and it's got to be fitted, and they've got to they've do alterations. And if you're lucky, you get it a month after you order it. I don't like that. I like to pay and go. I like to pay and I like to have what I paid for in my hand. I, I, I like to place an order and, and, it, and it be there like in five minutes from now, not five days from now. I don't like the anticipation of going to the mailbox every day wondering if it got here yet. And some of you love that and more power to you. But that's not for me. I, 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 I live in a world where 
If I need an answer to something, I just pick my phone up and I get the answer immediately. If I need something and it does have to be ordered, in a matter of minutes, it's on its way. Unfortunately, that same mindset has translated to our, our relationship with God. We want our prayers answered now. We don't want to be stuck at the drive-thru. We, we, don't, we don't want to have to wait. We don't want God to say something different than what we want to hear. We have to have it now. And the, the reality is, is that it separated us from God. We still are engaged in a lot of religious activity. But listen carefully to me this morning. Religious activity does not equal fellowship and communion with God. Doing all the right things does not indicate or nor does it guarantee power of God in our lives to accomplish it. And in order to obtain God's power and in order to please God, we must do things God's way. God's way is seldom fast, but it's always on time. God does not want us to just be flippant in our evaluation of the Christian life and how we conduct ourselves for his glory. He wants us to be a part of it. In the 18th century, or the 19th century, excuse me, sometime in the early 1800s, there was an explorer that was sent down to the continent of Africa, which was largely unexplored at that particular point in time. And he went down and his mission was to map a certain part of the continent. And so he got there and he hired his, his, the people in his safari that he needed to carry his equipment and, uh, and their provisions and uh, all of that things. He had people that carried, he had people to set up and to tear down and to cook and to do all the things that needed to be done because he wasn't there to go camping, he was there to, to map. He needed to study the lay of the land. He needed to take notes as they moved along. He needed to uh, cover as much ground as he could cover and get as much accomplished as he could get accomplished in the time that he had to work with. So he got there and he made his hires and he set out to work and he pushed as fast as he could go. And, uh, and he was ahead of schedule and he was super excited about being well ahead of schedule. That things were progressing so much better than he could have ever anticipated. And, uh, and then on the fourth day, uh, or three days ahead of schedule, rather than getting further ahead, his workers that morning decided they weren't going to cooperate today. He got up expecting to see them breaking camp, and they weren't breaking camp. They were resting. And he expected to see them doing all the things that he was paying them to do, and they, they weren't doing it. So he went and talked to the to their leader and he said, what, what's the problem? I'm paying you to do this. We're ahead of schedule. We need to get farther ahead of schedule. We need to accomplish as much as is possible. And he said, well, it's not gonna happen. I'll pay more. It doesn't matter. It's not about the money. And he looked at him dazed and confused. And finally, uh, the man there who he was talking to looked at him and he said, uh, we've decided to stop and let our souls catch up with our bodies. And my plea to you this morning is to come to the realization that sometimes we need to stop and let our spirit catch up to God. But catching up to God means going back to God. Because God's not outpacing us, we're outpacing Him. And the reality this morning when you look at this text and you look at the life of Abraham, Abraham is certainly a central figure in the scripture. 
He is the friend of God. How many people can you say that God looks at us? He's a friend to me. God's a friend to us, but how many of us are truly a friend to God? So, you know, when we look at David's life, we, we tend to think about his sin and his flaws and the successes, the Goliaths and those types of things are like secondary. What's for, and first and foremost is his failure. But with Abraham, what's first and foremost is his faith. Paul tells us about it, reminds us of it several times, particularly in great detail in Romans chapter 4. And uh, you see him, of course, leading the way in, uh, in, in Hebrews 11 and, and the amount of time that's given in there in the verses to, to Abraham and to Sarah, uh, as opposed to some of the others. He's given more uh, time in, in that place because he was a man who was known for faith, but he was not a man without failure. And so when you look at the context here, back in chapter 12, uh, we see that God is making a promise to Abraham that he's going to give him this land and he tells him to set out, but there's a meeting time with God. And we see uh, in chapter 12 in, uh, in verse number 7, and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him, and he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east side of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hai on the east, and there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. So what we see here is that when Abraham comes to a place where God is moving his life, where God is challenging him, where God is growing him, there is a meeting place with God. It's a specific place. It is a dedicated place. This isn't the last time that he'll come here. As a matter of fact, we see here in chapter 12, he meets with God. God makes this great promise. He has this fellowship and communion with God and then a famine comes. And that's detailed for us in the remainder of chapter 12. And as that famine comes, Abraham has to, has to he, takes, he doesn't have to, but he takes matters into his own hand. He leaves and he goes down into Egypt and he fears that they'll take Sarah from him because of her beauty, uh, that they'll kill him and that they'll take her. Uh, and so he lies and he's deceitful and he has a failure of faith in the midst of this adversity. But it's not a complete lapse of faith. He knows where to go to get things right. He knows what to do to set things back in order. And that brings us to chapter 13 and verses 1 through 4 in our text. And again, he comes here returning from Egypt uh, and he and his wife uh, and Lot with them. And you see that in the midst of this, God's blessed him. He's very wealthy. He has money. Money's not a problem. I don't think I'll ever live to see the day when I can say that for me personally in my life that money's not a problem. Money's always going to be a problem. For us as a church ministry-wise, I think that money's not, I don't say that money's a problem, but uh, money's always going to be uh, an issue. There are a lot of things that we would like to do for the glory of the Lord that we just simply don't have the money to do. And until God's ready to give it, then we're just doing what God's, we're learning to be content with what God's entrusted us. And I believe that pleases and honors the Lord. 
But the reality is, is that if we just had all the money in the world, uh, we'd fix some of our drainage problems and we'd have new parking lots and we'd have uh, the outside of the buildings looking like something that you actually want to walk into instead of just wanting to casually continue to drive past. And uh, it, it would be a lot more inviting and welcoming and, uh, and it, it would be beautifully landscaped and, uh, and all of those things that go with it. If, if none of those things were an option, then all of those types of things would be state of the art. And if God wants that for us, and at some point God provides it, so be it. But if he doesn't, let's just be content with what God's given us. I'm just telling you this morning that, that you know, that we're not in the position that Abraham was in. He had gold. He had silver. He had, uh, he had cattle. He had everything that a man of his time could hope to experience in the matter of wealth. But yet, he was empty. He knew what God had promised, but he also knew that he had failed. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, under the place where his tent had been, in verse 3, at the beginning between Bethel and Hai. And under the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first, and there Abraham call, Abram called on the name of the Lord. So what do we see here? We see this. We see, first of all, that this is his place of commitment. For Abraham, a secret place, a personal place that was sacred, where he had previously met with God, where he had confidence that God would meet with him again, was paramount in his life. It was a place of his commitment. God had made commitments there to him, and he had made commitments there to God. What he's really engaged in in this time that he's alone with God is relationship building. He's building his relationship with his creator. He's not, he's not just simply trading one addiction for another. You know, I think about this thing in, 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 about worship and about being alone with God and about our service to God. And I think sometimes uh, that, that we just run from one addiction to another. Now I realize, you know, we have an RU ministry, so we kind of talk in those terms a little bit more freely than some churches might. And I'm not, I'm not, I think all of us have addiction issues in some form. For some it might be mashed potatoes and gravy, uh, and others might have some, but, but all of us have some things, some the world would classify as harmful and some they wouldn't. Uh, and so, uh, but we all have those types of addictions. Listen, the, our, our relationship with God and our service to God shouldn't be simply running from one addiction to another. There are a lot of people that they simply trade one buzz or one high for another. That's not what the Christian life is about. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with me. He, he wants what's done to be born from a heart of love, not from the need to feel important or to feel successful. That was a hard thing for me to get past, honestly. To not walk through life feeling like a failure because things weren't progressing at my pace at whatever ministry I was involved in is a hard thing for pastors to get past. To realize that we have what God wants us to have. That doesn't mean that we don't aggressively go out and try to do what God has for us to do, but the results are his. The fruit, God gives the fruit. God gives the increase. 
And so when we look and we consider here this morning, what I'm seeing is this, is that this is his place of commitment. But the reality is that commitments require time. Big commitments require time. I, I can't make a commitment to something and not expect that it's going to cost me some time. If, if I were to uh, take on a project, if I was a contractor that was going to go and uh, take on, I was out in the neighborhood the other day and uh, there's a neighbor back on the back part of the, uh, and they just built a, a new fence about a year ago and they just remodeled their whole back porch. It was beautiful. Uh, and so you just see it when the fence is down. Well, the fence was down again. And so I'm kind of cruising by there and I'm looking, they're putting in this big, beautiful in-ground pool. Well, there's, whoever they contracted to do that has to put in the time to get it done. There's not an expectation of you're hiring me to do this thing and I'm taking your money, but I'm not going to actually show up and do the work. That's a problem. Okay, and in the same concept in our relationship with God, God has made a commitment to us and God wants a commitment from us. You realize this morning that God's expectation for our lives is that they be given to him as a living sacrifice. That means every bit of me, every moment of my time, every, it doesn't mean that I don't take care of my family, that I don't earn a living, that I don't. But my motivation is my God, my worship of God and things set in his path and his order. But the realization is, is that my commitment to God requires time for God. And so big commitments require time. Secondly, I would say that big commitments require conviction. In other words, I must have the conviction to see it through. In other words, it, may, it, has to, it requires sacrifice, so it has to be important enough to me that I'm willing to make the sacrifice. The reason, honestly, that we don't give our lives a living sacrifice to God is because we don't feel that it's important enough to do it. Our vision of God is so small and our view of what God's expectations are is so anemic that we simply do not understand the importance of God in our lives. We want God on the fringes. God wants to be a part of every moment. We want God to casually pass through on Sundays and when we need him in emergencies, but God is always with us. And big requirements require conviction. I must be able to be in a place where I can hear the voice of God speaking to me. And he can't hear me. Oftentimes my wife will need lunch or, or want some lunch from out and she'll likes a, she likes to get a, a salad and a soup from Panera Bread. So I'll, I'll run out sometimes during the work week and hit that drive through Now admittedly, my, my hearing is not as good as it once was. And it's even worse after COVID for some reason. Uh, and and I, I get up there to that drive-through, and if there's traffic moving behind me, I really struggle to hear what that people those people are saying through that through that monitor. I, it's just hard. Why? Because there's too much background noise and there's too much distraction. I can hear that they're talking, but I can't make out what they're saying. I can't tell you how many times I've been through that line and I've just said, "Yeah, what, whatever, thank you," I, and I have no idea if they got the order right when I get up there. Uh, I just, you know, if they didn't get something right, I'll hear about it later. Uh, and so, I, you know, I just give up. I just, it, it's pointless. And too many of us, that's our experience with God. We sense that he might be talking, but we really can't make out what he's saying. Because our, our hearts and our minds, our heads, our lives are too full of background noise and distractions. And we're too busy to stop and listen. God, uh, hang on just a minute. I'll be right with you. 
rather than God spoke, let me drop what I'm doing. It's the old E.F. Hutton commercials. Remember those? If he spoke, people listened. The world came to a standstill. Listen, when God speaks, your world ought to come to a standstill. And for Abraham, he comes here and he says, listen, God, you're important enough for me that I'm willing to make the sacrifice. What did he do? He went to Bethel. He went, he separated himself from his wife. He separated himself from his, his people. He separated himself from his livestock. He went to a place alone with God and he built an altar and he sacrificed there. And he fellowshiped with God and he communed with God. And when he went and was challenged and struggled and God saw him through it and brought him back, he knew that some things in his life spiritually were not in, in order. He went back to Bethel. He went back to the place that God had spoken to him. The importance of that personal sacred place, again, could never be overstated. You see this manifest itself in the life of his grandson, Jacob, as well. And we all know Jacob the supplanter, Jacob the deceiver, how he tricked and deceived his brother out of, uh, out of his, uh, his birthright. We know that, uh, that Esau you know, despised, or I guess, the birthright, and then he was tricked out of the, the blessing. Uh, and so part of it, Esau just didn't value but part of it he desperately wanted, especially coming to realize what he had sacrificed earlier. And Jacob, at the behest of his mother, tricks him out of it and deceives him. And then he has to flee. And as he flees, we find him in Genesis chapter 28 and verse number 19, fleeing to Laban, his uncle, his mother's brother. And uh, as he's fleeing there, uh, having tricked and deceived his brother, we find uh, in chapter 28, in verse 19, God dealing with him. And we don't have time to look at the, the whole text here, but in verses uh, 11 and down to verse number 19, we see him laying down at this place called Bethel, dreaming a dream and seeing the angels ascending and descending and ministering uh, and God telling him that uh, he'll care for him. And verse 16, Jacob woke out of his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. In other words, I didn't know it before, but I know it now. God is here. And Jacob rose up early in verse 18 in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. Now, I didn't look up and see what the name Luz means in, uh, in, in Hebrew, but the name in Spanish, was my mother-in-law's name, means light. When you look and you consider and understand that Jacob, the light came on for Jacob here. He's fleeing his brother. He is about to begin for 20 years reaping what he's sown. For the next 20 years, he's going to be deceived and treated wrongly. For the next 20 years, he's going to be lied to and taken advantage of. And he won't leave and go back because he knows when he goes back, he's got to face Esau. And he knows that Esau vowed to kill him whenever he left. And so, but God comes to him and tells him that, hey, it's, you've been here for 20 years, it's time for you to go home. But Esau, you don't worry about Esau, I'll take care of Esau. Now, I wasn't there, you know, and I didn't have time before the service to, uh, you know, to ask 
uh, to ask some of our older members if, if they were there and they can remember the conversation, but there wasn't anybody old enough in here for me to pick on. I guess I could have picked on Brother Buck. Uh, and so, uh, it, you know, I, we weren't there to hear the conversation, but, I, you know, Jacob's got some legitimate concerns. But he also has a big God. And in chapter 20, or excuse me, verse, the chapter 31 and, uh, and verse number uh, 13, we see Jacob now doing wrestling with God and, uh, and God coming to him again. And hey, he's seeing him in a dream and, uh, and he says to him in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel where thou anointedest the pillar and where thou vowedest a vow. Now arise and get thee from this land and return to the land of thy kindred. So here he comes prior to wrestling and God tells him it's time for you to get up and go. I'm coming to you. Get to Bethel. Go back to where I spoke to you before. Go back to your sacred place. Go back to the place where you fellowshiped and communed with me. Why? Because God said I've made commitments to you. I want you to make commitment to me. God says that I'll always be here for you. I want you to commit that you'll always be with me. That's what God created us for. Companionship and fellowship. What we see here, second of all, not only is this place a place of commitment, but it's a place of communion. It's a place where they're not just together, but they're engaged. When we look and consider this, you know, I often think, if, and those of you that have only been married a short time may have a hard time understanding this. If you've been married for 25 or 30 years, like many of us have been, then you'll understand this really, really well. When your children are gone and they leave home and you come together and it's just the two of you and you try to start figuring out who you're married to again. <clears throat> you find out that, you know, a, a lot of couples drift into an existence where, you know, they live under the same roof, but they live two completely different lifestyles. They're strangers in the same home. And then there are others that maybe aren't that severe. I know, uh, you know, there, there's, some, there's some good to be said, to be able to sit for a long time with somebody that you love and to not have to be constantly talking, just the comfort that's there, that's a good thing. I'm not knocking that this morning, but it's not healthy if from sunup to sundown you're side by side and you never engage in conversation, if you never acknowledge one another's existence. I didn't marry my wife 32 years ago so that I could live under the same roof but be separate in our lives. I, I married her so that I could share my life with her so that we could have communion and fellowship with one another. Now when you're young and all, everything is just new and everything is, is, is just all be together all the time, but you know, when you get older, it's, you know, honestly, it, it's not a big deal. She said something the other day about, I, I really need to take my sister out. And so she feels bad leaving me at home uh, alone for, you know, for four or five, six hours that day. And I'm like, go, have fun. I don't mind. But I don't want her to stay gone. And whenever she gets back, I, I, I want to, depending on what her sister talked to her about, I want to hear it. <laughs> you know, we can all relate. The point is it's a place of communion. It, it, listen, the Christian life isn't about doing a lot of deeds. It's about walking with God. I can do a lot of things with my wife and never be with my wife. I can go a lot of places with my wife and never go anywhere with her. We can sit next to each other on the plane. We can sit next to each other in the rental car. We can eat our meals together. 
we can go see the same sites, we can go engage in the same work, but if we, we can do all of that and never really connect. And when you live that way, nothing in life is fulfilling. Nothing brings you joy. Nothing brings you peace. And how long will we be content to have that kind of a relationship with our God? We fill our days and our lives with religious deeds and duties. And we never stop and talk with him. He's with us everywhere that we go. He's sitting next to us. He's in our heart. He dwells with us. Do we ever stop and acknowledge his existence? Why is this sacred place so sacred? Because it's a place where I commune with God. Every couple should have things that they know between them that no one else knows. Moments that they share that no one else shares. Things between them that not even their children and closest companions would ever hear. Because it's sacred. How long has it been since you've engaged in a sacred moment with God? How long has it been since you shared with him the things most sacred to your soul? Not just the needs, not just the heartaches that need to be healed, but just the close, tender, loving, worshipful, worshipful relationship with your father. And by the way, We'll never really truly be able to call him Father until we've seen him as God. Amen. We'll never value him until we see him on his throne, high and lifted up. This is a place of great communion. It is a place where Jacob and where Abraham came that they knew God had spoken to them before. Secondly, in this communion, it is a place where they could be with God undisturbed. You know, one of the most difficult things for a pastor to do is to have time with God that's undisturbed. The most difficult place for me to spend time alone with God is this church. I'm not talking about on Sundays and Wednesdays. I'm talking about during the weekday. It's, it's not easy at home. It's even harder here. Why? Because phones ring and people have needs and questions need to be answered and they're all legitimate questions. People need time. People need to feel like they're welcome. I, I never want to be the kind of pastor that it's a problem for someone to stop by my office. And sometimes that's counterproductive to getting done what I need to get done. And it makes it almost impossible to spend time alone with the Lord and that, that's intimate. There has to be a sacred place. There has to be some place that you go, some place that you can spend alone with the Lord, that you know that God has been there before where you will not be disturbed. There'll be no sound of a phone. There'll be no knock at the door. There'll be no question that has to be answered that can't wait. There'll be no emergency that arises. It's just you and God. That's not a relationship that God wants with preachers. That's a relationship with the God wants with every one of his children. To commune with you. He wants your undivided attention. Isn't it amazing how that we want to just zip in, drop what we're doing when we've got an emergency or we've got some great idea that just popped into our mind and we want to bounce into the throne room of God? And thankfully the Lord tells us that we can come only before his throne. 
But we want to just bop in there and expect God to drop everything that he's doing and to shut everybody else up that's trying to talk to him at the same time so that he can give us his undivided attention. But when God seeks our undivided attention, we're too busy or we don't even notice. Sometimes when our children were small, two, three years old especially, they would come longing for attention and be talking to us and we're oblivious that they're even talking to us. I'll do that sometimes with, uh, you know, one of my grandchildren now. I'll be talking to someone else and we'll be at the house and they'll come and they'll stand there or I'll just be sitting there maybe in, in my mind's wandered and they'll, Brooklyn will come up and she'll be carrying on a full-fledged conversation and, uh, and then she'll walk off and my wife will look at me and say, did you not realize that she was talking to you? Oh, I'm sorry. But how many times do we do that to God? He wants to commune with us. Lastly, this morning, for Jacob, for Abraham, it was a place of consequence. And this place is a place of consequence. And the most destructive consequence of all is if you don't have this place in your life. If I don't have a personal sacred place, the consequence of the destructive habits that I'll develop in my Christian life will be crippling to my effectiveness for God. Notice Jacob in Genesis 35. Jacob now is met with Esau and God has graciously restored them. And God is preparing him now to become the father of his people. The, the promise that he made to Abraham so long ago, he's about to begin fulfilling in Jacob. But Jacob was a deceiver and a trickster, and his name was defined by that. So God changes his name, and God wrestles with him. Notice in chapter 5 and verse 1, And God said unto Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. 20 years ago. Jacob, go back to where I met with you 20 years ago because I need to meet with you again. Don't let your meeting times with God go 20 years without being renewed. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Isn't it interesting that he innately knew that if he was going to come into the presence of God, he needed to purge his sin? There's something about coming into the presence of God and needing to commune and fellowship with him that sparks a desire in us to get our souls and our spirits clean before him. And let us arise in verse 3 and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods that were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Sechem. And he comes. In verse number 9, And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padaran. And blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. 
And thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. In verse 15, and Jacob called the name of that place, of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. Or Bethel. The house of God. When we look and we understand three thoughts about this place of consequence, it was a place that Abraham and Jacob both found a place of direction. They came to Bethel for God's direction. Things in their life were moving, things were transitioning, things were changing. They needed God's direction. So many times we're guilty of just going out and trying to do something for God, but it's not at God's direction. Do things Follow God. Don't expect for God to follow us. We need to follow him. Secondly, it's a place that God gave him courage. Hey, it took a lot of courage for Abraham to go and do the things that he did. And it took a lot of courage for, uh, for Jacob to face Esau. It took a lot of courage for him to set out and to, uh, and, and to live the life that he did. And they did not always do so successfully. They did not do so without failure. They did not do so without having to go to God and to reset things in their life and to get forgiveness and to find restoration. But they had that place that they could go when God was needed, when direction was needed, when courage had to be summoned, when their faith had to be built. God built their faith in private before he tested it in public. He built their faith at Bethel. My friends, this morning the challenge to us is this. Do we have a personal, sacred place. Pastor that I first worked for whenever I came into ministry full time, we all lived on, a, a, the, a, a, the boy's home property was 95 acres. And when you first drove in, his house set up on top of the hill with a beautiful view of the mountains in the foreground. And then you went down a little bit further and you came into the, the dormitories and the things and all the other housing. And so, you know, he had a beautiful home, beautiful big porch, that you, the magazine type of thing where he could sit out and spend time with the Lord overlooking the, the mountains. Right off the porch, he, when you walked in his front door, was a beautiful office on the left. But at that point in time, he still had a couple of daughters at home. Had a son that's pastoring now that was in and out of college. And it was a distracting place. So he built a little cabin out next to it in the woods. When you drove on the property, you really didn't even notice it. It was just kind of tucked away in the tree line and it was elevated up off the ground and it was really nice on the outside. I honestly don't remember ever going inside of it. And he wasn't the kind of pastor that was untouchable, that didn't want people to be a part of his life. You could call him if you need him. He, you know, you could drop by his home and he'd sit and visit with you. Um, it, it was, he was very personable. He enjoyed people's company, but, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't, you know, I remember one Sunday he called me and he had gone in early and I hadn't left yet. And I was getting the guys ready and loading up the vans and we were getting ready to go. And he said, man, I left this morning and I was in a rush and I forgot my jacket. He said, I need you to go up to my house. I need you to open the window. Uh, the, one of the there were two windows in his office. I said, open the left window. It's not locked. Climb through, go to my, my closet and go to this part of the closet and get me this specific coat. So he wasn't that kind of person that just didn't want anybody to, uh, he wasn't hiding from anybody. 
But I, I don't recall ever being invited into his prayer place. That was his place to get alone with God. That was his place where God built his faith. And, and you know, by the way, I, I haven't really known too many men in my life that have that kind of faith. You know, he went there and bought that 95 acres and built those buildings and didn't have really a penny to his name. Every year he would sell fruit baskets to make an annual payment. He had worked out where they didn't make monthly payments on the property. It was an annual payment. It was reasonable. I mean, it was, a, it was several thousand dollars, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, a huge amount. I mean, it was, he could, he, could, he could figure out a way to earn it. And he did. And then, you know, the church grew and built a building and that property was built and, and it bought and built. And then there was an opportunity. He had a burden to start a girl's home. God he couldn't get away from it. And there was 40 acres that came available. It had a beautiful house. And it was a lot of money. And it was, you know, the, the, he believed it. And whenever he spoke, the church just got on board. And everybody prayed about it and came together. I think there was one no vote. And, and that person asked to change their vote because they didn't want to be the only one against it when it was all said and done. But the payment for that for the next 10 years was $52,000 every January the 3rd or 4th. On top of what he was already having to raise for the other. And you weren't going to sell that many fruit baskets. And I mean, I remember many years going into December and there only being about four or 5,000 of that 52 or $3,000 accumulated. And we just pray. He'd work to do what he could do and just leave the rest in God's hand. And not one time did he ever fail to make that payment. God paid it off. And God blessed the faith. But God built that faith in a private, secret, sacred place. And I think it's a shame that Christians today would listen to what I'm saying and this be a new concept to us. You mean, Pastor, I'm supposed to have a place that's sacred to just me and God? But I have my devotions every day. I have my place where I read my Bible and where I pray. I have my place where I do this. I have my place here where I worship. That's not what we're talking about this morning. This is next level Christian living. This is not the kind of discipleship where the disciples kind of float in when things are great and float out when things get tough. This is discipleship that allows themselves to be martyred for the gospel because they valued their God and his call in their life. It was made possible because there was a sacred, secret place. Do you have a place where you relish God's commitment to you and where you offer your commitment to him? Do you have a place where you commune with God, where you share with him your greatest fears and your greatest dreams? The things that you're afraid even to share with your spouse, do you share them there with God? Do you have this place of great consequence in your life? There's great consequence to not having it. A life without direction. 
a life without courage, a life with the diminished and minimized anemic faith. But a place of consequence where God builds our faith and gives us courage and offers direction to do things in his place, in his time. I can't get that at the drive-thru. I can't get that on the occasional Sunday morning. I can't get that on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I can't get that Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and engaged in other ministry throughout the week. I can only get this experience with God in a personal, sacred place. Pastor, how do I get it? You just ask God. And when he speaks, let him show you. And enjoy a relationship and a life with God that you've never experienced before.